We are in the Gospel of Luke, and we're in the 11th, 11th chapter, and we are today at verse 20. If you look at your outline before we came together today, we're in the section, chapter 11, verses 14 through 28, a kingdom united or divided. A kingdom divided cannot stand. We've known that for a long time. And it comes straight from the Bible. So I'm going to pray, and then in a minute uh, we'll read verses 20 to 22 of chapter 11. Um, I'm getting this sense that I'm going to need to accelerate to finish the gospel by the last Wednesday in October. Um, That's uncharacteristic for me to hurry. Um, So I'm going to have to really figure out a way to do it. But uh, we won't start it today. <laughs> we'll start it next time. How about that? Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you. We uh, appreciate, again, the rain and the cooler temperatures. We're very, very grateful. Thank you for an opportunity to pause in our Wednesday to come together and study your word and to fellowship with one another as best we can over Zoom. And so I pray that you will uh, encourage us and bless us as we meet together and study the Gospel of Luke. I pray that uh, in all things your name will be glorified. And I thank you again for all who've come. Bless each one on this good day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do want you to know I'm thinking about how we can get together again um, sometime pretty soon. So... I don't want you to think that we've forgotten that, but uh, it, you know, it isn't easy because of uh, protocols and being careful. And if we do get together, um, likely it'll be brown bag because we won't be able to bring in food from the outside for a while. So I'll let you know, just to give you something else to pray about. Uh, all right. Um Luke 11, verses 20 to 22. You remember the verses that preceded that were uh, where Jesus had cast out demons, and there were some who were saying, well, he's casting out demons by the power of the devil, Beelzebub, which, of course, is absurd. And uh, Jesus points that out. And it gets to verse 20, where we begin today, and it says, but if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So I've I've entitled these three verses, The Kingdom of God is Here. The Kingdom of God is Here. Jesus drives out demons by the finger of God. What does that mean? By the power of God. Now, does that phrase sound familiar? Well, it will if you're familiar with a couple of Old Testament passages from Exodus. One is Exodus 8:19, where, of course, God has empowered Moses to bring the plagues upon Egypt, and in the plague of the gnats, the magician.
Egyptians who serve Pharaoh say in verse 19, this is the finger of God. So those godless magicians are saying to Pharaoh, Moses is doing what he's doing by the finger of God. However, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen just as the Lord had said. Now, if you go forward to chapter 31 and verse 18, uh, it says, when the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So there's that phrase again that Jesus uses in this text. And what it means is that Jesus cast out demons and all the miracles that Jesus did were by the finger of God. In other words, Jesus is God in the flesh and he is doing what he's doing by the power of God. So this is the direct power of God moving, of course, in the miracles that Jesus performed. And when it talks about the strong man, Jesus himself is the strong man. Now we get to verse 23, and it talks about verses 23 to 26, don't be recaptured by Satan's kingdom. So here's what it says. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. So let me pause. Uh, Do you sense Jesus is saying there is only, there are only two ways, my way and the wrong way, my way and the world's way. There are not, it's not a multiple choice quiz. It's, it's either true or false. And Jesus is saying, I said in John, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And here he says, as plainly as he can, whoever is not with me is against me. And and so Jesus is, is making it very plain here. Uh, whoever does not gather with me scatters. So there's not like there's a middle way. There's either Jesus' way or the wrong way. Now, verse 24 continues on. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it does, it goes through arid places, dry, empty. It really is trying to give the picture of empty places, seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. Now, we look at that and we scratch our heads and say, I'm not sure that I get that. And I've said that a couple of times about that passage. I'm not sure I get that. So dig in a little more. Jesus must clean the house and live there in order for there to be security against the demons returning. But when Jesus cleans the house and lives there, The demons are not coming back because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And demons cannot occupy a heart that is occupied by the Holy Spirit of God. So that is what, that is the point Jesus is making here. The demons return to an empty house that has been swept clean, but not by Jesus. And so he is not there. He does not occupy the house. 
So there's no middle ground. There's no neutral ground. And, of course, the guy's worse off than he was before because now instead of one demon, he's got seven living inside of him. Now we go to verse 27 and 28. And I've entitled these two verses, Blessed is the Believer. Look at what it says. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Now, Jesus is not being critical of his mother. In fact, the woman who shouted out, in all probability, didn't know Jesus' mother, may not have had a clue whose mother was, but she is saying, whoever she is, what a blessed woman she is because she gave birth to you and nursed you. And that would be a true statement. Uh, Mary was blessed to have been the earthly mother, to be the mother of, of, of Jesus and to have given birth to him and nursed him. But Jesus, by comparison, is saying, but the greater blessing is on those who hear the word of God, hear the words that I'm saying, and and the written word of God, blessed are all those who hear and what? Obey. Obey the word of God, which would include believing in me, following me, acknowledging me as God in the flesh, and blessed are you. So not, again, not being critical of his mother, though I would hasten to add, if Jesus was going to venerate his mother, as some do, uh, this would have been the time to do it. I mean, you got this lady crying out, how great is your mom? And this would have been the time for Jesus to say, yep, you better pray to her. You better worship her. He didn't say those things. All he said was, the greater blessing is to the person who comes to know me through my word. Blessed are the obedient. Now, we get to verse 29 through 32. And I've entitled this passage, The Sign of Jonah. Remember Jonah? Hey, did we do Jonah? We did, didn't we? Back two, three years ago, we did Jonah um, in tune-up, maybe four, five, six years ago. I have no idea, except that we did it. I remember. So here's what he says in verse 29. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation, period. If Jesus were uh, here in the flesh today, I wonder what he would say about this generation. If he said that generation was wicked, I'm not sure he'd have adequate words to describe this generation. However, it says this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So we say, hmm. Wonder what that means. Jesus explains it. For as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. What's the connection? Remember, Jonah was swallowed by the big fish. In the big fish for three days, propelled onto land from where he went and did what he had been told to do originally, go to Nineveh and preach. But the sign there is 
the three days in the belly of the fish as Jesus was three days in the tomb and then arose from the grave. So that's the connection. That's the sign of Jonah. Let, let me go on through verse 32. The queen of the south, I think we often call her the queen of Sheba. The queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. You get the, you see the illustration Jesus is using? The queen of the south came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, but there's a whole lot more wisdom in Jesus than there was in Solomon and yet this generation won't pay any attention. All they're interested in are miraculous signs. The men of Nineveh, he's not finished yet. The men of Nineveh, back to Jonah, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now someone greater than Jonah is here. So Nineveh repented because a disobedient prophet named Jonah spent three days inside a fish, then finally came and did what God told him to do originally, and Nineveh was saved, what's wrong with this generation that they won't listen to one greater than Jonah? So that's the connection Jesus is making. And speaking to a Jewish audience, they had, they had no, they understood, they got it. Okay, we, we know the story of Jonah, we, we got it. Except what they didn't get yet was the Son of Man spending three days in the earth. That'll come later. They knew the story of the Queen of Sheba and Solomon. And Jesus is saying, I've got more wisdom than Solomon, but you folks aren't listening to me. All you want me to do is another sign here and another sign there, and that's what you're interested in. But you don't want to believe in me, and you don't want to follow me. So the crowds came looking for signs and miracles. So what Jesus gave them was the sign of Jonah. How? Jonah, he was in the fish three days. Jesus is in the tomb three days. One greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south, that's the land of Ethiopia, by the way, came to see Solomon. Why? Because of his wisdom. And greater than one greater than Solomon is here. And that one is Jesus. Okay, now let's look at verse 33. Uh, I've entitled this, Don't Reject the Gospel. Don't Reject the Gospel. Look at verse 33. No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand so that those who come in may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body also is full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it is dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Okay, now, don't reject the gospel. That's the message Jesus is giving to the listeners and to us. The people reject Jesus. Their eyes are darkened. They reject Jesus, so their eyes are darkened. They focus on evil instead of on light. And the word is, let the light of Jesus shine. Let the light of Jesus shine. The only way to, uh, the 
only way to enter the kingdom is to hear God's word and recognize the sign of the cross and the empty tomb. So, uh, Jesus is saying, don't reject the gospel. Now, I want us to think about this for a moment, and I'll close this section with these words. Remember we talked about the finger of God a minute ago? The finger of God points you to the kingdom of God. The finger of God points you to the kingdom of God through faith in the Son of God. Let's go back over that again. The finger of God points you to the kingdom of God through faith in the Son of God so you might escape the wrath of God. Go back over that again. That's that's kind of memorable. I'm not saying I've got it memorized, but it's kind of memorable. The finger of God points you to the kingdom of God through faith in the Son of God so that you might escape the wrath of God. So we're reminded of that in this great passage of Scripture. Now, we come to verse 37, and we find some woes, W-O-E-S, some woes on the religious leaders. So let's look at verse 37. I'm going to read all the way through 54. So we're going to read for a minute, 37 to 54, and then we'll kind of look at a little more detail. All right, here we go, verse 37. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. Okay, now we've got a transition. We've got a change of pace. Jesus has been speaking to the throngs, to the crowds. They're looking for a sign. They're amazed at what Jesus does, but they're just not. Jesus says, this generation, you're just not hearing. You're not listening. Listen to me and what I say. So we get a change of pace. And he's invited to the home of a Pharisee. Now, let me pause there and say, would you have accepted that invitation? Uh, I probably would have said, oh, thanks, but no thanks. I mean, I can smell a setup a mile away. Well, Jesus could smell a setup a mile away. But Jesus responds by accepting the invitation. So he went in and reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Now, I don't want you to think that Jesus was a naughty boy who never washed his hands. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the ritual washing that were part of the ritual requirements of being a Jew in those days. And Jesus knew that ritual, though intended to be meaningful when it was given, was empty. For the Pharisees, oh yeah, they would ritually wash their hands. Hearts were absolutely devoid of truth. So Jesus did not ritually wash his hands. He did it on purpose. One an accident. So they're amazed. I'm sure there's mumbling in the room. So the Lord said to the Pharisee who had made that observation, Now then, 
you Pharisees. Clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Well, the dinner guest has decided to give it back to him in a manner of speaking. So Jesus says, you, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. Now, I don't think Jesus was even using a sweet tone of voice when he said that. I mean, this is a fierce discussion. And it will be fierce all the way to the end of the chapter, as we shall see. So he says to his host, you're worried about me not ritually washing my hands. What about the inside of you, which is sinful and dirty? Verse 40, you foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. So he punches them right in the nose at a point of great weakness. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees because you love the most important seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you're like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. One of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us. Jesus Jesus did not skip a beat. He did not say, Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. He do, I don't even know if he took a breath. He just keeps right on going. And you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because you build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They kill the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. I think Jesus is fired up. Not done yet. Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, here's what I mean all the way to the end of the chapter. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. Now, that's a very 2020 picture of uh, our society today in getting in the face of people and besieging them and threatening them, and that's exactly what the text means. They were besieging Jesus fiercely, 
And the word fiercely, come in close, I want you to get this. The word fiercely means fiercely. No secret meaning. Very intense moment in the life of Jesus. So let's think about verse 37 to 54. Jesus is invited to dinner at the home of a Pharisee. The religious leaders are present. Apparently, so were at least some of the disciples, though perhaps not all of them. Jesus did not ritually wash his hands as the Pharisees believed he should have, not a manner of, of sanitation, but a manner of ritual. So Jesus doesn't make nice, but he preaches a point-blank message right between the eyes. He calls them hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup while the inside is dirty. Now, imagine that at your house. You have guests over, and you are getting ready to present a cup of water, we will say, to your guest. And so you look at the outside of the cup and polish it up and make sure that it's clean, and you present the cup of water without ever having looked on the inside, and your guest looks inside at the water and says, ooh, you didn't clean the cup on the inside. What's more important? I think your guest would say, if I'm going to drink this, what's more important is that you have cleaned the inside of the cup. So just an illustration that Jesus is using to say, you're dirty on the inside. You may go through rituals that make you look good on the outside, but on the inside, you are unclean. Now, they they got it. These highly educated Pharisees, they know exactly what Jesus is saying to them. They didn't lean over and look at each other and say, what do you mean by that? They knew what he meant by that. It was as clear as it could be. He accuses them of not truly loving God. And he gives an example of the tithe. He says in verse 42, he doesn't say don't tithe. He said you you should tithe. Don't neglect the former, which is tithing. Don't neglect it. But what you have done is you've been giving a tenth while neglecting justice and love. He's saying you cannot do that. You cannot neglect justice and love while thinking that because you tithe, that makes you right with God. It does not. So woe to you, Jesus said. You sit in your favorite pew so that you will be seen, but your heart is far from God. I wonder if that ever happens on Sunday at our church. I know it doesn't. That doesn't apply to any of you. I'm confident of that. But I wonder if that happens. Someone wants to be seen, but on the inside, their heart is far, far from God. Now, one of the religious leaders finally has had, I mean, he's endured this. And so he speaks up and he says, when you talk to us like that, you insult us. And so Jesus said, oh, man, I sure I did not mean to do that. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? No. As I said, he doesn't even take a breath. He just keeps right on going. And he says, you load people down with your rules and rules and rules, but you won't do anything to help them. And in verse 44, he says, you walk into unclean graves of hypocrisy. You know, for for a Jew to walk over a grave to touch the 
that this place of a of a dead body is is sacrilege. But Jesus is saying, you just jump right down in there. You walk into unclean graves of hypocrisy. You're you're just like your ancestors who killed the prophets. And you can go back and read many of the Old Testament prophets, and you know that's exactly what happened. And then in verse 57, he says, you blocked the path to salvation while not entering it yourself. So, so you refuse to be saved through me. And in addition to that, you try to block other people from coming to know me. So, uh, Jesus is very direct at, in his message to the religious leaders and he gets up to leave and they follow him out the door. There are probably others standing out there who've been listening and they besiege him and they bombard him. Right in his face, the picture is not of a polite crowd. They besieged Jesus right in his face and flood him with questions, expecting him to respond, and it was an ugly scene. Now, we don't know what finally happened, if Jesus just walked away and they let him go, or he walked between them and they wondered where he went, as had happened back in Nazareth. But Jesus walks away and ends this session at a Pharisee's house where the Pharisee uh, got what he was looking for, and that was an opportunity to challenge Jesus, but he also got what he wasn't looking for, and that was an in-your-face sermon about your the reality of your heart and soul. So um, I think that's a pretty plain passage of Scripture, isn't it? Jesus is really challenging the the Pharisees. So I think the message for us today is as believers, if we could just make a little application is don't, don't be hypocritical. Um, Be sure that you're guarding your heart. Walk in, in the truth of God's word. We're all going to sin. That doesn't make you a hypocrite. We're all going to sin, but when you do sin, acknowledge it, confess it. Make it right. Receive forgiveness. If you've offended a person in the process, then then make it right with that individual. Uh, but don't be hypocritical. And just be sure that you guard your heart and that you're not like the Pharisees who are heaping scorn on others because of the sin you see in their lives while all the time ignoring the sin that's in your own life. It's very easy to do. We've probably all done it at some time or another. Very easy to do. But Jesus says, don't do that. Don't do it. Now, we get to chapter 12. Excuse me while I check the time. Okay, we're okay. We get to chapter 12, and I've entitled this, Acknowledging Jesus Before Others. So let's look at verses 1 through 12. No, let's do this. Let, let me let me say an introductory paragraph, and then we'll read, we'll dissect the passage a little. We won't read all 12 verses right off the bat. What you're going to find in this passage is that thousands, thousands gather to hear Jesus. Isn't that amazing? Thousands of people are going to come together to hear, to hear Jesus. His fame is spreading rapidly. And in fact, as they gather together, we're going to find the crowd is basically out of control. Some people are being trampled. Now, this is not the same as the hostile crowd outside the Pharisees' home. They didn't want to hear what he had to say, but this crowd does. And in their effort to get to Jesus, some people are getting trampled on. So this is a, pretty tough situation, 
but their hearts are in the right place and that they are coming not to challenge Jesus, but to hear him. So Jesus speaks first to his disciples and the crowd gets quiet and they listen in. So let's read the first three verses as we get the setup to the chapter and as Jesus discusses judgment. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Okay, where'd that verse come from? Uh, ooh, I read that verse and I stop and I give pause and I think, you mean when I said what I said, it's going to get broadcast? When I thought what I thought, it's going to get broadcast? Uh-oh. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. Oh, good grief. I thought I was being confidential. (laughs) Well, let's think about that passage for a minute. The Pharisees are hypocrites. They say one thing and they do another. It is a moral inconsistency. They praise God with their lips while their hearts are far away. And they're praising God from their lips to not to impress God, but to impress people who are watching. Now, hypocrisy, like most sin, spreads. That's the yeast illustration, like yeast. And yeast is a frequent biblical symbol for sin. Beware. Jesus condemns sin and says it will be exposed in the judgment of God. And the hidden life will be shouted from heaven's rooftop. Am I a hypocrite? Do I fear God? Do I fear his all-seeing judgment? I should. But understand this. If you're a believer, remember your sins are forgiven, washed away. But there's coming a day. He says, when every word uttered by those who are unforgiven will be broadcast and heard and will be part of their judgment. Mm. Okay, this is a challenging passage of scripture, all these chapters here, the the ministry of Jesus. So I want to finish up as far as we get to go today. There There are three people we should fear. Fear God, fear the Son, fear the Holy Spirit. Those are the three. Fear God, fear the Son, fear the Holy Spirit. Now, when I use the word fear, uh, there is an element of uh, the quaking of our hearts, yes, but primarily reverence and respect. It doesn't mean we sit all the time with shaking in fear of God. It means there needs to be in our hearts a reverence, a respect, and a desire to honor and please him. That's what he means. So let's look at verses 4 through 7 and think about fearing God. I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. There's a lot there. and There's a lot there. So Jesus says, my friends, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body. Okay? Uh, I have to admit, I'm a little bit afraid of that. No, Jesus said, don't, in, in light of eternity, don't be afraid of those who can kill your body, but that's all they can do. Now, Let's think in terms of persecution and martyrdom for a minute. That that ties in here. It's not exclusively the meaning, but it ties in. Um, Is martyrdom the worst thing that could ever happen to us? Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill you. They kill you, and that's all they can do. And what happens to you? You go immediately into the presence of the Lord. The worst thing anyone can do to you is to kill your body and then throw you into hell. Well, who can do that? The only one who can cast you into outer darkness is God himself. And if you are trusting in him, in your son Jesus, then then you don't need to worry. Oh, no, we don't want somebody to kill us, but... We know if that happens, we go in the meeting in the presence of the Lord. So what he's saying here is don't fear the person who can only hurt your body and they can't do anything more, but be afraid of the one who can cast you in outer darkness. So the, to the Pharisees, he's saying, you need to fear God. To the lost who are there, you need to fear God because he is the one who can cast you into eternal darkness. And so that's not where you want to be. But, but notice in that same passages he says fear god he also offers incredible encouragement when he said look now look are not five sparrows sold for two pennies it's not much money sparrows were uh they weren't very expensive they aren't they weren't yet not one of them even though there's a cheap little bird cheap cheap I guess that, yeah, they're cheap little bird, yet God remembers every one of them. So if God remembers the sparrows, what about you? You're a whole lot more in the eyes of God than sparrows. And and the very hairs of your head are all numbered. God cares for you. Some of us don't make God work overtime to number our the hairs on our head. Others of you put him to work uh, on that. But what he's saying there is God treasures you. God values you. God loves you. So don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. You're precious in the sight of God. But he's also saying in this double approach to this passage, fear God. He has ultimate authority over your eternal destiny. So we have fear and respect as two aspects of God's character in, in the, in verses four through seven. His terrifying power, that's one aspect of his character, and his trustworthy love, the other aspect of his character. Fear God. Hell is far worse than physical death. Uh, physical pain may be 
a difficult thing to endure, but it is temporary. But a soul in hell is eternal. So we appreciate God's goodness. We are never, uh, we, we never fear his love. We fear his judgment and we run to his love. So that's the message Jesus is delivering about fearing God. Now the second part of that verses eight and nine, fear God, fear the son and fear the Holy spirit. Look at verse eight. I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the son of man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. You notice the subtle transition. He talks about whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the son of man, he uses that term for himself, will acknowledge before the angels of God. Then he makes sure they understand what he meant by that. I am the son of man. Whoever disowns me, son of man, before others will be disowned before the angels of God. So this is a, a um, perhaps for his listeners, a stunning, a stunning statement. Jesus stands between God and man, and he says, follow me, no matter the cost, fear the son, lest you perish. Or another way of saying, I am the way to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Then verses 10 through 12, fear the Holy Spirit. Look at that. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, here we are. Have you ever wondered, and I know most of you know the answer, but have you ever wondered what's the unpardonable sin? Well, here it is. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. When, when you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Okay, we'll, we'll have to finish with this because this is a big deal. Um, so he says in, in verse 10, there is a sin that is unpardonable. And what is that sin? It is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? Okay, to ref, to think of, let's reflect on that. What is the job, so to speak, what is the job of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever? Now, remember, if you have trusted Jesus, the Holy Spirit lives in you and all your sin is forgiven. Therefore, it is impossible for you to commit the unpardonable sin. Your sin has been forgiven. If you know Jesus, don't lose one minute's sleep about committing the unpardonable sin. You haven't, you won't, you can't, it's impossible. But what about those who have not given their lives to Christ? Can they commit the unpardonable sin? Yes, and here's how. The work of the Holy Spirit to the life of an unbeliever is to call and draw and woo that person to Christ. Now, here's how an unbeliever commits the unpardonable sin. When that person says to the calling of the Holy Spirit, no, 
for the last time, he has committed the unpardonable sin. In other words, the Holy Spirit has called a person to Jesus and he says, I will not do it. Then he's committed the unpardonable sin. There is no forgiveness for the sin of rejection of Jesus Christ. No forgiveness. That is the meaning of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the unpardonable sin. Now, um, you can go to commentaries and maybe get some differing opinions on that, and that's fine. I encourage you to do that. But that is um, my opinion, and I'm pretty convinced I'm right on that uh, as to the unpardonable sin. So he goes on to finish those verses by saying, when you're brought before others, like synagogue rulers, authorities, or you could apply that to your life of witness, when you wonder, I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, the Holy Spirit will teach you what to say at just the right moment. So don't fret, uh, don't be afraid, but understand at the right moment, you will know what to say. It will come from the Holy Spirit. And I believe that in our witnessing. I know some people say, I'm scared to witness, and I don't know what to say. Well, Tell what you know about Jesus and let the Holy Spirit guide you and you'll be amazed. You'll end up saying the right thing. Not saying everybody gives their heart to Jesus when you witness to them, but I am saying they'll understand. They'll know what they're supposed to do. And then it's between them and the Holy Spirit for their decision. Forgiveness is available for everything except blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, rejection of Christ. And then the Holy Spirit gives you the words to say, I'm going to close. Uh, because we've been talking about fearing God, fearing the Son, fearing the Holy Spirit. This morning, uh, I, I do a Bible study with one of my grandsons every Wednesday morning. And um, before he got, before he, now this time of year, before he goes to school. And today we read Ecclesiastes twelve thirteen, And so that verse says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God. And keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Elsewhere in the scripture, it says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, knowledge, and eternal life. So Jesus is saying here, fear God, fear the Son, and fear the Holy Spirit. Now, next week, we come to verse 13. And uh, the next section goes from verse 13 all the way through verse 9 of chapter 13. And I've entitled that the life giver because in that passage, Jesus uses the word life a lot of times. So we're going to try to define that and see what Jesus has to say about life. And he is the life giver. I'm going to do my best to figure out a way to accelerate so that we can get through Luke by the end of October. Uh, so pray with me that I'll be able to, uh, to accomplish that. All right. I love y'all. Thank you for joining in today. I'm going to pray, and you're welcome to stay on and chat if you'd like to do that. And uh, if not, then I'll see you next time. May God bless you all. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for speaking to our hearts. I thank you for all who've come. Pray your blessing upon each and every one. Guide us and direct us in your way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. God bless you. See you next time.